Lucky number two. Welcome, faithful listeners. I'm Lacey. And I'm Amy. And we're your guides in The Library Game, an eclectically indecisive book club. So what is The Library Game? If you're a new listener, it is a randomly methodical way of answering the question, what do I read next? We take the row, section, shelf, and book in our local library, and we just assign numbers and pick which number is going to lead to the book that we read. For this episode, our RSSB coordinates were 11, 2, 4, and 1. So row 11, section 2, shelf 4, book 1. And that led us to The Appetites of Girls by Pamela Moses. Yeah, a very different book, I think, just looking at the cover here, than what we've read so far for this podcast. Yeah, I think we've done a pretty exceptional job at creating a lot of variety <laughs> in yeah, the books yeah. that we're our, covering. Our random method is proving to be perfect for branching out into some genres that we would not have wandered into of our own accord. So for the by the cover mm-hmm. on this book, The Appetites of Girls is white italic font across the front And the picture is a very, very zoomed-in mouth. Looks like a woman's mouth, I assume, based on the title, that it is a woman's mouth. Well, it looks like it has a bit of lipstick on there on the lips. Yeah, it's a a very cropped-in, super zoomed-in close-up. So it's just from like that Cupid's bow downward. That's it. Everything else on the book, on the back cover, front cover, is just... Uh, reviews. I will say we've got like a three-quarter angle on the face there. It's not like a straight-on shot. Mm-hmm. And the mouth is... We the mouth it? is slightly open yeah. in a very like, yeah. maybe like a seductive sort of thing. Yeah. I don't, and which, you know, can only play into our concept of appetites, right? Right. Yeah. What sort of appetites are we discussing here, ma'am? So do you think that we were a little prophetic in our last episode where we talked about maybe getting into like a raunchy romance novel? That is the vibe that I'm getting. However, there is so little going on here that it, it could be anything. It could literally be anything. I am I have my fingers crossed for a little bit of maybe social intrigue. Mm-hmm. I don't know how better to explain what I think that that might mean, but some kind of mystery in there somewhere, something to kind of tantalize you, you know. I've gone around and around on what I think this might be. Mm-hmm. For a brief moment I was like maybe it's eating disorders. Maybe it has something to do with that. But the whole, you know, making it look kind of seductive, I really think it's going to be some romance stuff, but I think it's going to be romance stuff with a side of sisterhood. Mm. Maybe the main character does have a love interest, but a bigger part of the story is how she connects with the other women in her life or something Mm. like that. Do you think that there's going to be some social commentary on the role of women, girls, femininity in society. I'm I'm kind of wondering if that's going to be part of it, kind of some subversion of that maybe, or just a 
commentary on, you know, does this mindset that women are often given, does it serve us kind of thing? Maybe. Maybe. So sort of like whatever appetite we're (laughs) we're discussing here, the taboo of women having any sort of desires in that way. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. My I also have an off the wall that I know it's not gonna be about this. <laughs> but you gotta you gotta shoot from the three point line and maybe you'll get it, right? Exactly. Yeah. So uh I don't know why a sports reference came out of me on that, but blacked out for a minute. <laughs> you know that I have a problem where in books and movies and TV, multiple times I have stumbled into something and been very surprised midway through that it's about vampires. <laughs> I was so hard not to laugh while you were talking. Yes, this has happened to you more times than can be considered coincidence. You have a problem. I don't even like vampire stories. <laughs> But it keeps happening. So Yeah, to the point where like I've gotten texts from you that was just like, damn it, vampires again. And I knew exactly what you were talking about. <laughs> so that's my holdout hope that perhaps at some point vampires. So this is actually turning your problem into something that you would actually look forward to um, if, this time around. If it's vampires or smutty romance... I'm going to pull for the vampire. <laughs> However, those those genres do cross. Uh quite a bit. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm I'm way too excited about this now. I think we have to find out are there vampires. So let's uh let's get our hint here at what this might actually be about. Okay, so opening up and looking into just kind of the inside sleeve here, we do start off with a quote from another author before we actually get into our synopsis here. So uh, Heather Gundenkoff says, this is such an important novel for women to read. It is a vivid, multi-layered portrayal of friendship and the earnest, often heartbreaking search for a true sense of self. I enjoyed it immensely. So that's Heather Gundenkoff, New York Times bestselling author of The Weight of Silence. And then there's another little snippet here that says a novel that touches on the profound and often complicated relationships we have with our bodies our mothers, and ultimately ourselves. Ew. So that's that's fun. All right, here's the actual uh, synopsis for you guys. Four young women are thrown together as roommates freshman year in college. Ruth, Francesca, Opal, and Setsu. On the surface, they seem as different as different can be, but scratch the surface and each is striving to overcome struggles from childhood and find her true self. Self-doubting Ruth is coddled by her immigrant mother, who uses food to soothe and control her. Defiant Francesca believes her heavy frame shames her Park Avenue family. To provoke them and to protect herself, she consumes everything in sight. Opal longs to be included in her glamorous, adventure-seeking mother's dinner dates, until a disturbing encounter forever changes her desires and the isolation she had always sought refuge in becomes stifling and setsu a promising violinist staves off conflict with her jealous older brother by moving on to the back sleeve allowing him to take away the choicest morsels from her plate and from her future when these four women arrive at college and are put together as sweetmates their stories and appetites collide and while they will ultimately make a pact to maintain their friendships into adulthood Each must first find her inner strength 
and her way in the world. So there you go. I think uh, you were very on with your initial yeah. prediction there. Sounds like Sisterhood of the Traveling Fork. <laughs> it makes me think. Now, I never read it, but a friend of mine actually really enjoyed the Joy Luck Club. Oh, which yeah. I believe is a very similar exploration of womanhood and relationships with mothers. The way she has explained it to me, also friend of the podcast, uh, Sam, uh, the way she explained it to me is the first time she read it, she hated it. But then when she read it when she was a little bit older, she connected to it a little bit more just on those themes and stuff. So this sounds like it's going to be a very heavy mm-hmm. story, a lot of drama and trauma, which... There's a part of me that's just like, does everything about women have to be about drama and trauma? And weight, I guess. Yeah. I'm going to guess. My prediction is that this is going to be the first book that we read that I outright say I don't like it. Mm. That's my guess. I might be wrong. Every other one, I've been hesitant. I think that this is going to be one of those books where... I will continue to think, yeah, I never would have picked that. I can understand the importance of it, but I guess we can read and find out. Let's go. Okay, so uh, we did it. And boy, was it a heavy one. Yeah, so before we get into the details and our discussion of the book, I do think it's important that we go ahead and give some content warnings for those who haven't read the book already. We want to just let you know there is uh, featured eating disorders, sexual assault, and emotional abuse. Oh, and also abortion. So uh, a lot of heavy topics come up in this book. So uh, that being said, I do want to, before we even get into anything about the book itself, I want to go back to the thing that I said, where I said, this is going to be the first one that I outright say, I don't like it. And I just have to say that the library game has again proved itself to be a very effective strategy because while it was not an enjoyable read, like it was not fun, I didn't feel good. I thought it was a really good book. And I think it's one that I'm going to think about for a long time. That type of book where it's made to make you feel feelings and like think big things. It did that for me. Yeah, I would definitely say that this is an exploration of a lot of inner icky feelings (laughs) and how those kinds of icky feelings affect the way we live our lives. And I found myself avoiding starting it up for two reasons. One, because there was a lot of uncomfiness in these stories. And I am the kind of person that I just, I like to avoid those kinds of things. (laughs) And so there was definitely that discomfort and that weirdness that came with it. But the other side of it was that I knew that if I started it, I would get pulled in to Mm -hmm. that and pulled into the drama and trauma (laughs) of the book. And I did. I, I will say I have enjoyed other books that we've done so far much more. But yeah, I didn't dislike this book. It's not an escapist. It's more like throwing the world in your face kind of a book. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely a book that challenges you to sit in those feelings and kind of reflect on what that is for you. I will also say, though, that this book made me thankful for my own upbringing (laughs) in a lot of ways, my relationship with my own mother. I mean, yeah, these are fictional characters and they're all written to say very specific things. 
So I think for me what it is is that the characters are a little less nuanced than they obviously would be in real life. But that, again, is this book has a message to tell. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, you know, you sacrifice a little bit of realism for that. You know, though, I think the main character, I'm pretty sure she is like a reflection of the author. Yeah, I was about to say she is definitely the most fleshed out of all four of the main characters. If you read the inside cover, that character's at least educational trajectory is the same as the author. Ah, well, there you go. Because I think it's her first book. And I think it's probably a culmination of writing a semi-autobiographical story about her own experiences and then embellishing it to make it fiction and make it readable. Okay. Maybe she took some aspects of her own conflicts and struggles and put them into some of the other characters. So let's, the way we thought about breaking this episode down would be to do a general overview of the book and then kind of talk about each of the four characters. Yep. So, Lacey, why don't you just give us the quick and dirty of the book? So it is centered around four girls who meet in college. They are randomly assigned college roommates. And the book is structured in that the first chapter is them, I think, 11 years after college. And they're meeting up for a baby shower. They haven't seen each other in a while. And it reminded me a little bit of, do you remember the movie Now and Then? Yes. Oh, I loved that movie. It reminded me of that because that movie kind of starts out that way too, where they're like adults and then you flash back to childhood. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It's, it's set up like that. So you kind of are introduced to the characters as adults very briefly. And then the next section of the book is one chapter each for each girl in their childhood. So they don't know each other yet, but it's kind of giving you a pivotal moment of their childhood that is a shaping factor in who they are when they do meet, which is in the second section. So second section is during college, and I think it sort of progresses. So it's like starts out in freshman year, and then the next girl's chapter is in sophomore year. And then the third section is after college. And then in the last chapter, then we go back to the baby shower, and that's how it ends. Okay, so before we get into each of the four main characters, what would you say was your favorite aspect of the book? Depending on the girl, a lot of the book for me was their relationships with their mothers. Mm -hmm. And as a person with a young child, that was just really impactful for me hearing... kind of all the ways that these moms fucked up many and varied <laughs> ways that they just completely screwed their kids. So I'll say that was my favorite part, but it was also kind of terrifying <laughs> <laughs> to read and just be like, wow, everything you try is going to be wrong. <laughs> yeah, probably in some way, at least for a little while in your daughter's eyes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What about you? I really liked the detail that went into the Jewish immigrant aspect of Ruth's upbringing. I think just because of how different her life is from mine, you know, growing up in Oklahoma, lots of space around my house, not in an apartment building with other families, you know, right down the hall. And then also in the very first chapter, when she's going to meet her friends for the baby shower, she talks about how a baby shower never would have occurred to her because within the Jewish faith, it's one of those 
It's bad luck, right? Or like a bad omen or something along those lines about how like you don't count your eggs before they hatch, mm-hmm. you know, and she gives a particular phrase in Hebrew and then translates it to all things in good time or, or something along those lines. And coming from a big family and then also having a lot of friends who have had children through the years, I've been to so many baby showers, <laughs> that just this idea that they don't, you know, that there's whole groups of people where that is a foreign concept is really interesting to me. And so I, I really liked just kind of reading about, you know, a, just a different life. What about least favorite parts? Honestly, my least favorite part is sort of a key component of the book, and it's the food. While I think the things that are discussed are things that lots of people struggle with, I think it was exaggerated to a point of unreality. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I thought the story was compelling enough without having to force food into every single interaction. And I feel like maybe the author was told that they needed an angle. Mm, Okay. And I just, Mm -hmm. I didn't think it needed it. Yeah, I could see that. There were a few aspects that I felt definitely crossed to a point of unreality that it kind of took me out of the story. There were some times where I felt like the way some of the characters talked played into that, where one of the girls would be like, shall we blah, 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 blah. (laughs) Nobody fucking talks like that. I don't care that you're at some Ivy League school. Nobody fucking talks like that, okay? (laughs) It was weird because it would go back and forth between that. Sometimes they would talk and be like, oh, yeah, that sounds like a normal person. And then other times I'm like, quit churching it up, okay? (laughs) We get it. You know big words. (laughs) And so there were times like that where I felt like I was pulled back out of the story because of it. Interesting. I don't feel like I had that experience so much, but this is probably the book that I read the fastest Hmm. because I just wanted it to be done. (laughs) (laughs) like i didn't want to stretch it it out it did feel like there was a couple times where i'm like man i'm putting myself through this recreationally (laughs) like what am i doing uh so with that glowing recommendation let's just (laughs) get into it (laughs) we already said it starts out with the baby shower and i i realized we haven't said all the girls names so ruth is the Mm. main character and then we have Francesca. And when I read the name Francesca, I thought that you were going to be right about like the smutty novel because it just seems like a smutty novel name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but no. And then we also have Opal and Setsu. So that's our four girls. Ruth is the one who's pregnant. And it's uh, Francesca's throwing the baby shower. Yeah. So with that in mind, do we want to go ahead and just kind of get into each character, do a brief synopsis of their journey? Yeah. So let's start with Ruth. Okay. Yeah. So Ruth's, she has kind of a, a series, I think, of pivotal moments in her beginning part. And it starts with her preparing for her bat mitzvah. And it kind of goes into her experiences at school and her self-consciousness with her weight that is countered with her mom kind of overfeeding her often, or just these really hearty meals that are traditional with her Polish Jewish immigrant family. Mm -hmm. I think mom almost kind of sees food as a control mechanism. 
Yeah, so Ruth's mom is definitely uh, pretty controlling, but she does it in this, it's because I care about you, I want the best for you, I want to make sure that you have the proper prospects as you get older. And there's also what comes to light is that she left her own opportunity Mm -hmm. for higher education. She left college before she was able to finish, and you can tell that there is some regret there and some if-onlys. Yeah, I think she is definitely the picture of that mom that was like, I didn't get to live the life that I wanted to, so I'm going to make damn sure that my kids get every opportunity. And so whether they want it or not, (laughs) she is the mom who terrified me the most because (laughs) she tried so hard, like everything she did. So some examples of things that Ruth's mom did. So like you said, it starts out and it's her bat mitzvah. And during the bat mitzvah, you have to read a section of the Torah in front of everybody. You go through all these practices trying to like get your pronunciations just right or whatever. So Ruth is really nervous about this. And her mom decides she's going to sit down and memorize all of it as well. And then mom is always comparing her achievements with family members, other kids. And so she'll criticize any sort of flub up that another kid did. So Ruth is sort of like terrified of being anything but perfect. Yeah, to the point where her cousin has his bar mitzvah while she's preparing for hers and he does pretty okay. I think only messes up once. Mm -hmm. And her mother turns to her and says, yours will be even better. Yeah, And so she sets her up almost just to fail. And I think it's intended to be an encouragement. I think it's intended to be like, you're going to do so great. You're blow it out of the water. But for Ruth, who is, you know, not a not a like high achieving kind of kid, she's not found her her thing yet. You know what I mean? Like she's not a kid who feels super confident in anything. Well, and I think it also comes down to this idea that in a way, you could say that she's being smothered by her mom. Oh, right. Because yeah. her mom tries to control all aspects to make things perfect for her children, that her children don't really have any agency of their own. Yeah. And it's very much like in this family, the mom dominates. Dad goes to work. I mean, he hardly has a personality. <laughs> and so I think that in her attempts to make everything as perfect as possible so that Ruth is able to be perfect, quote unquote, Her actions have created this daughter who does not know how to speak up for herself, how to stand on her own. Yeah, she doesn't ever give her the opportunities to prove that she can do something. So that's what happens at the bat mitzvah. Mom decides, I need to sit down and memorize the exact same thing so that I can save you Mm -hmm. if and when you fail. And so Ruth gets up and she's doing really well. And then she loses her place. And rather than, you know, having just... I'm going to take a second and find where I was and then keep going. She Mm -hmm. panics and looks at mom and mom starts mouthing the words. And so then she has to pick it up from mom. So she doesn't get to have the moment of achievement. She has a moment of embarrassment where mommy had to save me. And it's self-reinforcing in that too, is that she is embarrassed, but also relieved that mom saved her. And that just makes her even more reliant on mom. But this is the moment that she's supposed to be showing the world that she's a woman. Yeah. And she has to get saved by mom. And so then uh, later on, she has 
report that she's supposed to be doing, a book report, mm-hmm. and she works really hard on it. She gets into this private school, so it's really, really hard, but she, she spends hours and hours, and she does really, actually really well. So her teacher reads her draft of her report, and she's like, this is really good. I just have a few notes. And mom is so controlling and so worried about her getting good grades so she can go to a good school and have a good job and have a good life that mom has gone and read the same book and then she asks to read the paper and essentially makes her rewrite the entire paper that was already a good paper. She basically gaslights Ruth into thinking that all of her great points about the novel and everything were just wrong. Yeah. And through Ruth's eyes, we see this slow backslide of, oh man, I did a really good job to what was I thinking? How could I have ever thought that that was good? You know, this horrible loop of negative self-talk yep. coupled with, thank goodness for my mom who was there to save me and stop me from making a big mistake. For her childhood section, the pieces about food, she is a heavier girl and mom will comment on it, but in like a loving way. Like, look at how you filled out as mm-hmm. if being a string bean, that's a negative thing. You don't want to be that. You want to be a healthy girl. And so then the other big thing for her as a kid is that she decides she's going to go out for swimming. She loves it. It's like her happy place. And she feels like I was made for this. Like Mm -hmm. this is my thing. And I think it's really the first time in her life that she's felt like I could be good at something. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because it ties into she loved going to the beach with her sisters and her dad and her mom wouldn't go on those beach trips. Mm -hmm. And she mentions how the first times that they would go when she was younger, she was scared of the water and she Mm -hmm. was scared to go out into the waves. And her father just kind of encouraged her and didn't make a big deal about it either way. And eventually she was a natural swimmer and her father talked about how much she loved it. And so. When she makes that decision, like, this is what I want, I think that it connects to that. Right. It was just, it made her feel good and it made her feel like she could do something. And so she was Mm -hmm. so excited about it. And that even encouraged her to try to be healthier in her eating because her coach explained to her, like, body shapes can make you faster in the water. And these are the kind of foods that make you healthy and strong and have energy so that you can be even faster in the water. So she starts to do that and she feels really proud of herself. And mom is constantly like turning her nose up at the fact that she's not cleaning her plate every night. And then she goes to some competitions. She wins some trophies, not first place, but she places. Yeah, she places in her first competition. Like the first time she competes, she gets third place. She's super proud of it. And again, mom just kind of poo-poos it. And Finally, mom comes out and is like, it's not first place. Like, you didn't win. Maybe you're not really very good at this. And that that just kills her. She also, she hurts herself because mom's distracting her. Yeah, I mean, right back into that self-fulfilling prophecy, you know. And I think we see that the mom definitely looks at the swim coach as competition for her control, right? Because this coach is putting weird ideas into her daughter's mind and it's unhealthy and Her mother tells her so many times, you can't do this. Yeah. While at the same time, holding her up to a standard of perfection. It's either you're perfect or you're not. (laughs) Mom is very academic focused. So if it is not an academic pursuit, it is not worthwhile. So it mentions in the book as she goes to this private school, her mom color codes her classes. 
And you and I have talked about the correct colors <laughs> for different classes before. Yeah. And I've written mine down. I sectioned it out as English, math, science, and social studies. Now, I'm going to preface this by saying in the book, she mentions that she has six courses on her first day and her mom has color coded them all. Now, she only mentions color codes for three of them. So history, math, and English. But I've already written down what I believe are the correct colors for these oh, different man. things. I am not going to tell you what her mother did, but I want you to say, what is the correct color for history? History? I'm having to, like, I'm narrowing it down. Okay, English is yellow. That is correct. <laughs> um, <laughs> science is green. That is correct. <laughs> and then this is where I get, I think math is blue. Yes. And then Which that, that social would leave. studies would be red. Red. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So okay. you and I are on the exact same page <laughs> on the correct colors to color code <laughs> courses. All right. So w listeners, we need your feedback on this. And it's okay. I understand if you disagree, it's okay to be wrong. So now I'll tell you how wrong Ruth's mother is. Uh, she color coded <laughs> history as yellow. Mm. She did get math correct. Math is blue, but she made English red. So she switched English and history. Okay. But anyway, so I just, it was one of those things that when I heard it in the book, I started cracking up because I remember you and I having that <laughs> conversation because I think you were color coding something for your daughter, right? Yeah. Yeah. You were being a total Ruth's mom. I No, I told you, this is the mom <laughs> that scares me the most because she's the one that I totally see myself in trying uh, so hard to make sure that your kids have every chance to succeed, but not realizing that everything you're doing is going to make them hate you. <laughs> well, not everything. Well, a lot. <laughs> okay, so the pivotal moments of her childhood. She has several moments where there's an opportunity for her to succeed in a way that builds her confidence and makes her realize that she can be a successful person on her own. And in each of those moments, mom basically does something that prevents her from completing that. Yeah, her mom is really good at stepping in at any moment of failure and capitalizing on it, rather than encouraging her to persevere or anything like that. It's like, no, 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 baby, baby chick, come back under mama's wing and I'll protect you kind of thing. Yeah. So she starts out college having really no ability to make good decisions for herself because she's never been able to. And the decisions that she's made, she's been made to feel like they were wrong. In starting college, I think her first, I would say, success in branching out a little bit is she does start taking some writing classes mm -hmm. and she sticks with those. And even though her mom, I think, maybe sees it as just like, well, it's, you know, an extra class, she can still focus on these other things. And it's just one class. So her mom doesn't focus on it too much, but she also does not give any encouragement whatsoever, even though Ruth is doing really well in her writing classes. But when she shares that with her mother, her mother is just kind of like, that's nice. Now, economics are really important classes. Nina, yeah. And she just kind of pivots away or doesn't acknowledge it at all. And so during college, Ruth starts to have more experiences around men. Yeah, so she has none from prior. She has this very, very slow, weird, like we're not going to acknowledge that we're touching each other, but we're touching each other kind of thing over many, many different meetings. <laughs> they become lab partners 
And so he's like, well, let's just study in my room. And it's very much like he doesn't hardly acknowledge her at all outside of class in these study sessions. But when she's in his dorm room, almost like Edward Cullen, creepy, (laughs) breathing her in or like just kind of right there at her shoulder or whatever, just gets closer and closer and closer. Yeah, if somebody had other experiences with dating, they would have found this guy creepy, but she found it flattering that a man was interested in her. And so eventually they have sex. And she has one of those, I feel like it's a very movie moment where every woman that loses her virginity has the reflection afterwards of like, how am I different? How am I a woman now? You know, and it's like, this sounds really weird to just say, but like, I have to touch myself, not like sexually, but just like touch my body now to to understand how I am changed. And now I truly am a woman. And this is one of those like very prosy aspects of the book that sometimes I was just like, okay, author, come on, I get it. She got laid. Okay. Well, okay. So the outcome of this is happy surprise. She gets pregnant. Yeah. From her first time. But what really sucks is that right after she realizes that she's pregnant, she also witnesses this same guy walking hand in hand with another girl. So it comes to light to her what was kind of obvious to the reader the whole time, which was that he did not care about her. He just maybe saw an easy lay. The crazy thing about this, though, is that I think most women in this predicament would be devastated. This is one of the times that I liked Ruth, but I also found it very unrealistic because while she's upset about it, she actually gets kind kind of excited and has this idea that like, I can do this. I can have a kid. How old was my mom when I was born? I can do this. And she again decides I'm going to read up about like, how do you be healthy for a baby? And so she starts eating healthy foods. And we haven't talked about her big eating issue as a college age person is that she has uh, like a binge eating disorder. So she will sit in her room by herself and eat like an entire care package worth of food in one night. The language around it is, you know, until my stomach is distended and Mm -hmm. painful, there's a lot of hiding and shame associated with it. She keeps food squirreled away under her bed. There's no purging along with it. It is just a binge eating kind of thing, but it definitely is followed by self-hate kind of afterwards. But when she finds out she's pregnant, she has a motivation to curb those impulses. And I mean, it makes a lot of sense considering her upbringing that, you know, she needs an external source of control. But eventually between when she confides in her roommates and they very much are supportive of her either way. But so Ruth goes home during one of the breaks and at some point her aunt notices the way she's behaving. And I think what she particularly picks up on is that Ruth is displaying some morning sickness. But her aunt picks up on it and hints to the mom that something's going on. And so then the mom confronts her. And there is a really great moment, I feel like, between her and the mom. And again, it does fit back into that pattern of mother always saves me. But it is an example, I think, where it really shows that Ruth's mom does care about Mm -hmm. her and wants the best for her. And even if she has all these faulty ways of going about it, she will do do whatever it takes to, you know, make sure that Ruth is supported. And so, I mean, it's her mother who sets up the appointment and they go to a doctor and she has the abortion. And, you know, she even says, I'll never tell anyone. 
I think it's very important to know that the abortion was not what she wanted. She went to this break stealing herself for explaining to her mom what she wanted and that she wanted to have the baby and her roommates send her off wishing her well. And as soon as mom finds out, there's not even a question of what's going to happen and Ruth doesn't say anything. She again has that moment of, why did I think I could do this? Man, I almost wonder if my own opinions on the matter played into that because I don't think I really kept the Ruth wanted to keep the baby like in my mind. I think I, as the reader, dismissed it like that's a terrible idea. It was (laughs) a terrible idea gonna ruin your future you know so i think i went into ruth's mom mode no i mean i totally agree i think it would have not been good for her however with her weird unreal reaction to it that's what she wanted and she again was not able to stand up to mom but you know towards the end she finds that foothold Mm -hmm. of no i have found what i want to do and so she gets a recommendation from her fiction professor for master's programs and her mother is super Super discouraging about it basically says it's not happening it's our money and I don't think that you can support yourself on that and Ruth really puts her foot down about it it's also a Catholic program she wants to go to Georgetown and that really raises some hackles for her mom but eventually Ruth I think through a combination of work study and scholarship stuff she squeaks by the ability to go and when she announces that that's what's going to happen her parents kind of cut her off. They have some communication, but it is very, family is healthy. Are you healthy? That's it. She doesn't get the care packages from home anymore. And so she's forced to go get her own sinful, terrible food that she has to hide. Contrary though to mom's intention, like that's kind of exactly what she needed was to be cut off. Yeah, and she does well. She has a roommate during this time and she gets her own little culture shock, I think, Mm -hmm. of like, oh, evangelical Christian people in the US, (laughs) like this is what they're like. And that's really weird to me. Again, it plays back into, you know, I was so intrigued by this New York borough Jewish family. And so then to kind of have that shown back on me, like, y'all are the weird ones. That's very bizarre. You know, that was kind of interesting. But eventually, mom and dad come around and they kind of start to patch life back up. She also starts dating a not Jewish man, which is a bit of a point of contention. But eventually, her boyfriend and her mom bond over making food, which I think is kind of interesting. But, you know, again, this time that she has struck out on her own, put her foot down, this is what I want, and asserted herself, she's finally successful. And so we have kind of a happy ending. So Ruth is definitely the most fleshed out story, but let's move on to Francesca. So Francesca is from a very privileged family from New York, right? Like Park Place, hoity-toity. So Francesca's big thing is basically her parents are way more focused on being socialites than being parents. So I think she's got a little brother. So most of her stories are about her being sort of forgotten as her parents are throwing parties and stuff. And her mom's really worried about getting these parties set up and what are you going to wear and buying her fancy clothes and things like that. Yeah. It's interesting because, like, Francesca as a person is forgotten, but Francesca as an accessory to the perfect family is not. But her reaction to this is very bizarre. 
Yeah. So her way of lashing out at her mother, and I guess what she feels is the best way to piss her mom off for ignoring her, is to ruin anything she can via eating. So Francesca will go, she'll go gorge and eat whatever she wants, also until like her belly hurts. Mm-hmm. But it's all with the motivation that she thinks that's going to make her mom mad. Yeah, Francesca is very much an externalizer where I think the rest of the girls are all very internalizers. Oh, yeah. I hadn't thought about that. As far as their actions, for Ruth, she feels guilty. She feels bad. She eats to maybe find comfort to escape or whatever. Francesca's eating is an act of war. Yeah, <laughs> it's true, though. <laughs> So her um her childhood section it's all about that. There's a whole bit about like her uh having a fancy dress that she briefly wants to try to thin down to fit into, but her mm-hmm. childhood section ends with her mom throwing this party for her, right? No, 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 no. It's for, not for her? Uh, a family member's engagement. Oh, got it. Okay. But her mom's throwing this other party where she's going to wear the fancy dress and she puts the dress on and like parades down and I think she's wanting mom to compliment her. And mom basically is just like, hey, don't touch any of this food. So her first thing is she's just like, oh, mother ignored me. And that, okay, another thing that like pulls me out is she's like, mother, (laughs) mother, mother. But I guess if you have a mother who demands that you call her mother, then maybe. Well, and I feel like like it fits with that vibe of the very hoity toity. Yeah, it starts off, she's like, mom, look how great I look. And her mom's like, I am way too busy for this. I've got all this stuff in it. And don't go in there because the caterers need to go in there. And she's like, well, I'm fucking gonna. <laughs> and so she goes in and she's like, there's all these little finger foods. No one's going to notice this corner one. And she's like, ooh, that act of rebellion felt good. I'm going to get some more. You know? And she's not thinking that act of rebellion felt good. She's just thinking, oh, that was good. I'm yeah. going to grab one more. I'm going to grab one more. And then it's like the whole tray. And then it's like... She looks over at the cake, the whole world disappears, and the cake has these sugar flowers on top, and she's like, well, no one will notice if I take just a rose, right? And then (laughs) that devolves into taking a whole freaking handful of the cake. And that was one aspect that, like, I was both terrified and relieved and angry that we didn't see the aftermath of that. Yeah. She takes that handful of the cake, and that's where it ends. I think it fits the story that her whole character is driven by, like, she wants to be rebellious, but is not being acknowledged for being rebellious. (laughs) Right. Punish me! (laughs) You know? (laughs) What I love about Francesca is she is a bombastic, the other girls perceive her very much as, like, she is so confident. Oh, she's, like, larger than life. She's got this big personality and she's unapologetic. And I don't think she's comfortable in her skin, but she plays that she is. Yeah, she 100% is doing the whole fake it till you make it thing. It's really funny because they see her as maybe not refined, but like she knows a lot of refined she's things. She's worldly, not refined, but worldly. Yeah, worldly. That's, that's a good way to put it. Because she knows all these artists and she's really up on fashion trends. And she's, I think, the only one of the four that smokes, which I did feel was like, well, that's very realistic for girls that are going, yeah. you know, for people that are going to college in the 90s. So Francesca in college, I feel like she starts out on that she's the cool girl. And the I don't give a damn. Like yeah. my my rebelling against my privilege is just like, ugh, I don't care. But then she takes a turn at some point and she decides that she's going to become an activist for like body positivity. But her body positivity activism is very negative. <laughs> 
Yeah. So she, again, as an externalizer of her angst, she makes everything a fight or she assumes every comment made towards her. Honestly, any interaction with men, she assumes to be negative and she assumes that she's only being talked to because she's associated with the skinnier, prettier roommates or because the skinnier, prettier roommates are already engaged in some way with somebody else. And so she's the leftovers that someone is just picking up because their better options are off the table. And so she comes at everything aggressively and angry. And there's a part of me that like really loves Francesca And I think that's why I would always get so angry about how aggressive and how wrong she was. And of course, again, as the reader, we are privy to everything that Francesca doesn't know, including what she doesn't know about herself. Right. And so it was really difficult to see her go through this angry stage because I feel like I definitely can understand that. Like I can understand that, ugh, you know, the world's out to get me or like everything sucks or, you know, I mean, like that angst that people get and how easy it is to fall into that and how... Again, another kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, how rewarding it is to kind of live in that righteous anger. So not not to make a comment on you saying that you can understand <laughs> that, but I have a note that I wrote down. I didn't write a ton of notes on this book, but this is one that I wrote that every time I look at it, it makes me laugh. And I said, Uh-oh. God, Francesca is such a female neckbeard. <laughs> I think that it's a good example. I think that there's a lot of truth to that because, again, it's that cycle of rage that feeds on itself. And it's like, because I assume that everybody is shit, Mm -hmm. all I see is shit, which reaffirms my belief that everybody is shit. And that makes me angry. Like she responds and treats people as if that's the motivation. And so they respond how anybody would when you're getting treated poorly. Yeah. And that just confirms for her that her suspicions were accurate. So her college storyline kind of culminates with her almost bullying in some ways her roommates because they aren't joining her group. So she starts this activist group. It's supposed to be about body positivity, but instead it it becomes more of this like, we make fun of other women who watch what they eat or who exercise or whatever because they are buying into the commercial standards of femininity and they're sheep. It plays into a very human psychological aspect of like, we have to define our in-group by hating on the out-group. And that tribalism kind of thing. And it's a dangerous mindset when it gets to that extreme because it does ostracize you and it prevents people from having kind of sympathy and empathy for other people. So in a lot of ways, in trying to build themselves up, this group only knows how to do that by tearing others down. And so it's not a healthy mindset at all. And it does ostracize her from the other three. And in fact, with Ruth in particular, because Ruth is the other big girl in the in the foursome, she's like, Ruth, I want to help you. I'm here to liberate you. I'm here to open your eyes, you know, and all these things about what you're doing wrong and what's wrong with you. And if you come over here, I'll show you and you'll get better and yada, yada, yada. And Ruth 
for all her various reasons, she kind of starts and then she's like, nah, it's not for me and kind of falls out of it. She really just wants to feel pretty and be loved, you know? Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think that that is definitely an overarching thing for all four of them is that this seeking of different kinds of love. Yeah. You know, whether it's platonic, whether it's, you know, unconditional love, whether it's fraternal love or love from the parent or romantic love. I I think it's very accurate to say that all of those are explored through the various characters. And then after college, Francesca goes on to become an editor for different magazines. The first one that she works for does do a lot of work in body positivity and, you know, diverse body types in fashion and beauty and you know things like that and it sounds like the perfect job for her and lo and behold it gets ruined for her by a man (laughs) yeah but i think it was a really important thing for her so she's got a co-worker a male co-worker Mm -hmm. who is like oh i love your appetite and i love everything about you and you're just he I, i love you just as you are and i love your confidence and so she feels like Finally, the man that we've all been saying during all of these chants that this is how men should be, I found one. Well, and someone that sees her. Yeah. Or at least she feels like he sees her. She moves in with him and they have this sort of like, it's a casual sexual relationship. It's not, they're not really dating, but. It's friends with benefits. Yeah. Roommates with benefits. Yeah. But she uh like she starts to develop feelings for him and then she finds a ring and i think it's important to say that they both articulate that this is casual right and we can have and they both do have other relationships but as it progresses she falls for him and then you know is is moves a bit towards being exclusive particularly after she finds the ring right and then she realizes that it wasn't actually intended for her so she sort of starts acting differently and he's like what's wrong with you and then comes to find out that it's intended for this other girl and she feels really stupid but i think it's an important point for her because she realizes i have actually do want that. I've told yeah. myself for so long that I didn't, but I really do. I want that and I want it to be real. And her upset at herself and at him. I think, you know, well, yeah. I mean, there's some justification that she does kind of immediately go back into that. You're just like every other guy. There's only one thing you want and it's that perfect girl, you know, because I think she mentions that the woman that he wants to propose to is a skinnier girl and, you know, all this stuff. But everything about all of her rage and everything, it's expressed towards other people, but it's really internal. It's, It's hate for herself. And I think that's the moment where she realized I am worthwhile and I do deserve to have somebody who treats me right that wasn't it but i want that and i deserve Mm -hmm. that whereas i think before she really didn't think she deserved it she would have said she did but i don't think she believed she did and when she does finally meet the one there was an aspect of it that i didn't like too much because if i remember correctly his pursuit of her was very much like i won't take no for an answer (laughs) but like in a gentle quote-unquote endearing way but In the exploration of the feelings and the things that come up in this book, I was like, really? Yeah. At the end of the day, like, the good guy is the one who can't take a hint. (laughs) (laughs) But it's it's that weird balance because, like, we know that she just needs to recognize that this guy is genuine and that he 
is attracted to her and loves her for who she is and has all the right intentions and stuff like that. But at the same time, I think he falls into that weird trope of if I just keep pursuing her, she'll change her mind. Yeah. And there's a weirdness about that where I'm like, well, that's not a very good message. That's one of those things where it's like you put happy, uplifting music under it and it's nice, but you put suspenseful music under it and then it's like a murder mystery. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And so it's kind of like a mixed message kind of thing. Yeah. But, you know, it's fiction. Whatever. So that's her story. Do you want to do Opal next? Yeah. (laughs) So Opal is the daughter of a single mother who believes that once you start to fall into a routine, it's time to move and change your life. And so Opal is from San Francisco, but she and her mother bounce around kind of at her mother's whim. As the story progresses, we very much see that her mother is probably depressed I would say uh, she seeks her own validation through men. It could be said that she's using these men for, you know, a good time and for the gifts and things like that. But I can't imagine that's a very healthy, happy lifestyle to the core. But Opal's first chapter is set in the Caribbean. I can't remember which island they're living on, but they're living at a resort. And her mother is the hostess for the resort's restaurant. And so they get their room and board as part of her payment, basically. So they live at the resort. Her mom works there and her mom is very much like, okay, let's go tan at the beach and now put on your face and we're going to be pretty, you know, and Opal wants to be like her mother. She wants to put makeup on like her mom does. And she begs her mom to like, let her put on lipstick and her mom indulges her. And she's like, oh, you're so cute. And Opal sees the attention that her mother gets from men. And she's like, I want that i you know i want i want someone to look at me that way and treat me like that and give me the gifts and whatever yeah and so opal starts to she learns how to put the makeup on like her mom does and she does a little bit of the perfume or something Mm -hmm. after her mom is so she also like stuffs her bra that was in now and then like the one girl does that and so you know she's like i want to be seen i want to be noticed you know and she has a very innocent a very naive concept of what the affections that these men are showing her mother mean Mm -hmm. as the reader we see it as like her mother is getting these very sexual advances from men and they're like oh i want to give you gifts because of the attraction you know i'm gonna take you out on my boat you know stuff like that and and opal wants that but she has a more innocent mindset with it yeah i think she she was old enough that she i feel like should have known more about what was going on with mom like i think she should have had more inklings about what sex was yeah but she really didn't she was kind of like you said really naive and clueless so the big event that happens for opal is that there's a man at the resort who approaches her and her mom at dinner and he is different from the other men because he pays kind of equal attention to mom and to opal at first it it very much seems like endearing that like he's just he's being nice to opal too right he'll bring her like a candy or something when he comes to get the mom and so you know he and mom go off do their thing but he also he always 
you know, makes a point to stop and talk to her or whatever. And she very much likes that and sees that as like, look, I'm an adult. I can participate in these grown up things. And so she gets jealous of her mom because he still has one on one time with mom where he doesn't invite her. And she feels like she should be included in that. And so. And she starts to think that her mom is setting that mm-hmm. up. Like her mom is intentionally excluding Opal. Yeah. So she decides one night that she is going to approach him without mom to sort of confront him about like, why aren't you paying attention to me too? So she goes to his room and he's like, Opal, 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 you're beautiful and I'm not trying to avoid you and let me show you how much I like you. And he takes advantage of her. He rapes her. Yeah. And she, it was a hard listen. Let me just put it that way. Listening to, it's not an overly graphic scene, but there is enough there that like it made my skin crawl. Yeah. Well, and it's child's words describing that because she is a child. Yeah. So she never tells what happens. Uh, She blames herself. Mm -hmm. It was her fault. And the guy leaves. She hides until he leaves. She doesn't leave the room again until he's gone. And I think, I mean, that's the end of her early section. So as compared to the others, Opal has a very acute instance of trauma in her life. But again, like you said, nobody knows that this has happened to her. And she does a pretty good job of of hiding that, you know. And I just want to say this too. Opal is attractive. She draws the attention of men even when she doesn't want it. Part of that is the way that she dresses, which is the way that she's only ever known to dress, which is influenced by her mom. Yeah, which is very much like beachy. Yeah. But she even talks about like, how do I walk in a way that doesn't invite men? Yeah. You know? Again, you know, the other girls, they look at her and they think this girl has won the genetic lottery. Uh, Beauty comes so easily to her. They're constantly asking her for fashion advice or to help with their makeup. And it's noted by the other girls about how this seems to annoy Opal. Mm -hmm. I feel like they have the assumption that Opal is just like, why can't you guys just know how to be pretty? (laughs) You know, I feel like especially... Is it Ruth? It might be set to. I can't remember which one. But one of them talking about feeling like Opal is annoyed is like, there's nothing I can do to make you look like me. Yeah. You know? Why are you even trying? Why are you, you know, making me work to do so much work for you? Whereas for Opal, it's very much like a, is this really the only thing people think of me? Yeah. Well, and also I think the, why do they want this? Why would anybody want this? I'm trying to think if anything in particular happens to Opal during their college stuff. And I think mostly it's just that she starts to dress less attractively. She does have a guy that she's pen pals with who Mm. she meets once and then they start to write to each other. And she's like, this is a real person who's interested in me for my mind. And he writes me letters where we talk about books and she, she starts getting really into running and like healthy eating and I really thought that she was going to be That's one right. who goes into having like an anorexia. And I think mm-hmm. she edges on it, but never quite gets to that extreme. Yeah, her her whole thing is that she, whenever she exercises, she can let go, basically. She can let go of her anxiety, that tight mm-hmm. ball of, you know, just tension that she's always carrying around. 
she can just let the weight of the world go and get out of her own mind. And it's there's a freedom. Well, and I think it's control for her as well. And that's what the food is. She she becomes very, very controlled with her eating in terms of like health foods. And then towards the end of their college years, she's dressing very conservatively. I'm trying to remember the name of the store that she starts shopping at because I, don't know. I remember being like, oh, yeah, okay. Like that's the no-nonsense businesswoman. Yeah, like button-down shirts. And I think I think she gets some like big boots to wear. Yeah. And then her post-school stuff, I actually enjoyed her later chapter just because it felt like a natural progression for her as far as just like, honestly, of the four, she seemed like the most well-rounded, even though she's the one that had like the most, I would say, the, the worst trauma. This is another one where I felt like it probably there were things based on a real person and they felt like kind of weird and unresolved a little bit. Like, so she has this older woman boss who she develops a relationship with. Yeah. So she goes to work at this gallery in Florida. And yeah, the lady that runs the place is this older, very regal seeming kind of woman. And so she starts to develop a relationship with this, like, like a, like a mentoring kind of relationship. And she really enjoys spending time with her and learning from her and is, admires her. She gets her into yoga. Yeah. She goes to this lady's house and they get drunk. And then there's this moment where she thinks that she's going to kiss her and she gets weirded out and leaves. And then she obsesses over that for like a week. And she thinks like, oh, no, she's mad at me. And, you know, just because I I denied her advance on me. And then when she finally confronts her about it, she realizes that it's not because she was trying to come on to her that she's been avoiding her, but because she's met another woman who she's going to go run away with. And so it's just this, I don't know. I guess for the character, it's it's part of the whole people only see me as a piece of meat. And so that's how she reacts. Then she's bummed out that it wasn't that. I think she she gets upset that this very serene, very almost like guru-like woman, because like she had built her up as that in her yeah. mind, right? Like this really amazing mentor, very serene, very wise. And then she felt like she ruined it because the boss thought that there was an attraction there and there wasn't. There was that weird kind of moment of like mixed signals yeah, And then the boss ends up in Opal's eyes as just another silly woman who gets love struck yeah. and loses her mind, you know? And so I think Opal's hangups are a lot in like, why do people want relationships? Relationships are terrible because of her own past trauma. And so when she sees this guru-like woman just go stupid over, you know, a love interest, she resents that too. But- in the process, she also just kind of learns that, like, you know, y- you can't hold people up to those kinds of standards. Somewhere she does share her assault with Setsu. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is the turning point for her. And I think that, it, that the message there is that, like, when you try to k- kind of carry too much on your own, you know, you, you just bury yourself more and more and more. And the freedom and the relief that can come from being vulnerable with another person, but letting that go in a sense of like, if I tell the story, it's not this weight on me anymore. And 
she didn't realize how it was affecting her until she kind of released it. Because I was really worried that we were going to get through that whole book and like she would never have told anybody. Because I mean, that was, you know, one of those things I was getting a righteous anger, like you've been hurt, you know, you need justice, you know, and again, like you said, hers definitely feels like the most real life in the sense that like, not everything is wrapped up necessarily in a pretty bow. Like she yeah. does meet a guy and get married, you know, and all but this that's stuff. Not, there, she meets a guy and at the end of her like post-college section, Setsu's trying to set her up with somebody and she's like, how about this other guy that has sort of been in and out of the story? And so I feel like there's an implication that she's going to end up with that guy, but then she doesn't. When it fast forwards to the baby shower, that's not the person she's with. And I think she does go out with him. And I think that the untold message there is that she's learned that like she can have a relationship and it's not a big deal one way or the other, you know? And so he's kind of like her, her first, I am my own person and I can have a relationship without it being this terrible, horrible, scary thing. Yeah. And then she finds the right guy that she wants to marry. All right. So our final roommate is Setsu. So Setsu is adopted. She is the one that I found the most unrealistic of all four girls. Yeah, her her story felt odd. So she she's adopted by loving parents who tell her her whole life about how her birth parents from Japan were gifted musicians. And so they really push her into music at an early age. I think they said she's four when she got her first violin. And that I understand because you hear about these like, really good musicians like they all started really young her parents are definitely playing into that stereotype of my overachieving adopted child from japan but she is naturally gifted yeah so they they yes they push her into it but she really has a natural affinity for it and she loves it yeah she feels like like it's part of life you know Mm -hmm. But the thing that gets me about Setsu is that she approaches life wanting to make sure that she never upsets anyone. Yeah. So she never wants to say the wrong thing or make someone mad. She's a pleaser. Yeah. But to an extreme that I I don't find realistic. Yeah. She she goes into kind of caricature, yeah. I think you could say. Like there's a point where I think it's her birthday. And her parents are like, what do you want for dinner? We'll make whatever you want. We'll have whatever you want for dinner. And she has this whole internal struggle about what's the right answer to what do I want for dinner? But then she also gets upset with people for ignoring her needs. And it's like, you never tell your needs. Nobody knows what your needs are. Yeah. You're mad that nobody's meeting them, but you don't ever voice what you want or need. People just have to guess. I will say she, she doesn't get mad outwardly i don't think she recognizes that she's upset about it until a little bit later in life because a lot of her inner talk is it's fine it's more important Mm -hmm. that they're happy you know and in particular this plays out quite a bit with her brother who is another adopted child from japan so her parents approach her with the wouldn't you just love to have a brother from Japan, just like you. He's also a great musician, just like you. And I think her parents and Ruth's mom also do this, where they tell you what to think by asking you. Don't you think it would be great if... And then I thought, because she was a baby when she was adopted, I thought that's what they meant, is that they were going to go adopt another 
baby, and that's not what they do. They adopt a boy who's older than her, but I think the motivating factor is because he's also a gifted violinist. Yeah. Which is just weird. It's like the blind side. (laughs) It's never explicitly stated, but there's very much that, like, white saviors adopting (sighs) foreign kids vibe, just a little bit in there. I feel like these are the least fleshed out parents, too. There's a little of that, but I also think some of it is just them, like, you're not giving me anything, so I'm just going to have to go with what I think. Yeah. But so they adopt Toru, the brother, and he is the opposite of Setsu in terms of his mannerisms and approach to life. He asks for everything. He requests things with the assumption that this is going to be given to me. I already know the answer, but I'm asking anyway. Yeah, and he also talks down to her about the music. So he's like, well, I am a genius, and there's no way that I could even teach you to play in the the genius way that I do. You'll never be on my level. And so she eventually stops playing so that he can be the one who pursues that dream because she believes he's better than I am and I should just support him. She basically is conned into this belief that her parents and her violin teacher and everybody, they were just being nice. They didn't actually think she was good. There's no way that next to him, how could anyone think that she was good? And they just are too nice to tell her. And they also, in this... I don't know. Her food thing is the one that's the weirdest food thing, too. So she does not eat very much. So she's already a naturally petite and slim person in general. But so when Toru comes, they start making all of these authentic Japanese dishes because he asks for them. And they're they're like, well, he asks. So I guess that's what we'll make. So the mom goes out and learns how to do all these dishes. And she makes like these huge meals. And he's a pig. Yeah, he won't let Setsu finish a meal. So even when she mom makes enough for three, four extra people, whatever's on Setsu's plate, he's like, well, you're not going to eat that, right? And so she just starts to not eat her food so that he can have it. She's very much in this pathological range of, I give of myself to others, basically. I think it falls into the stereotype, the harmful stereotype of Asian women of being petite, small, unseen, overly accommodating to others. And that plays into what happens through her college experience. Yes. So her her main thing we talk about in college is her boyfriend. James. Yeah. So she gets into a relationship with a guy that she meets at a party who is very attracted, we'll say, to the type of woman that is Setsu, which is, again, the slight, wispy stereotype of an Asian woman. I mean, to the point of, like, fetish. Absolutely. He specifically tells her how attractive he finds it that she doesn't finish her meals. Yeah. It's fucking weird. He showers her with praise and wants to completely dominate her attention to the point where he asks her for her schedule so he knows when she will be out of class so that she can go over to his place. And it's always on his terms. It's always with him to the point where she's alienated from her roommates. And of course, her roommates are seeing it for what it is. (laughs) There's a part in the book where he... (laughs) Does he buy her, like, a sexy outfit, and then he tells her to dance? Yeah. He also draws her naked and then shows the picture to his friends. Yeah. Without her permission. The other thing that happens for her in college is that 
she kind of on a whim picks up her violin and brings it back to school with her. She picks it up and brings it back because Toru was going to give it to somebody. And she was like, no, I think I'll keep it. (laughs) I forgot about that. Yeah, she also has a moment at home where she stands up to Toru and says something not a big deal. Like, you're not very nice to me. Yeah, it it boils down to that. Your words and your actions towards me are mean and I don't like it. And everyone is just like, what the hell, Setsu? Chill out. They're just kind of appalled that she would speak that way because no one's ever heard her say anything, you know? Yeah. So that for her is kind of a turning point. And then she tells him he can't have her violin. She brings it uh, back to school, but then doesn't really do anything with it until she finds out that there's like a, I don't know what you would call it, like a recreational group she sees the they're holding these auditions and she's like well maybe i could do that i don't have to be very good you know just to do that it could just be fun and so she starts playing again and she has those feelings and realizes how good it made her feel and then that kind of because everything's about food translates into food and she gets she starts getting hungry yeah she starts to have a more quote-unquote like healthy appetite Yeah, so she starts eating more, and James starts getting really worried because she wants to do this, and he's like, aren't you too busy? Are you sure? I'm just just looking out for you because I don't want you to get stressed out by overcommitting yourself to this. Yeah, and the the conversation happens because she left out like a breakfast pastry on the counter. He's like, I'm really concerned about this. (laughs) Yeah, I'm concerned about your overeating. But he plays it very much like... This is unlike you, and it's a sign that you are stressing yourself out. You eating that way is a bad sign, so I'm going to save you. Is what he's saying, and what it, the truth of it is, is that, like, you know, I want to control you, and I want you to be exactly the way I want you to be. You are an object to me, mm-hmm. and you as an object are not performing in the way that I want you to perform, basically. And the thing that I hated about Setsu's section is that In that moment, she agrees with him and doesn't do the audition. Yep. And she stays with him. Yeah. I think through the end of college, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think she visits Opal Mm -hmm. post-college and they have a conversation about how she finally ends it. And I think James like finds out. That's what it is. She's staying somewhere and James finds out where she's staying. Yeah. Because you can tell that they must, they've had this, like, she's tried to get out and then he, like, sucks her back in. Yeah, but she does finally put her foot down and leave James. She has, you know, a very brief stint at a career place, doesn't do too well, ends up being let go. And she's kind of unemployed for a bit when she finds out that Toru has fallen gravely ill. And unfortunately, her poor mother has her own medical issues and cannot travel to New York enough to really properly care for Toru. And so obviously she has to do it yeah. because it's her duty to go take care of Toru. So she does. And he's he's already got this creepy, weird roommate guy who's like obsessed with Toru. Mm-hmm. So Toru's illness is fake. <laughs> yeah. It's fake. He He had his music career. And it didn't, I mean, it didn't blow up like it was supposed to blow up. He had some like, meh, sort of reception. And then all of a sudden he has this debilitating illness where he can't get out of bed and he's got headaches and he's, oh, I can't be exposed to light. And yeah, he doctor shops until he gets some kind of diagnosis or something. 
But it's it's very much a, yeah, life didn't go the way I wanted it to go, but it's not my fault. Mm-hmm. I am a tortured artist who has fallen ill in my prime and, what you know, woe is me and all of that. So they have to essentially just tiptoe all around this apartment to not bother him. They have to make him these weird, bland foods because that's the only thing he claims he can eat. And then it's stuff that she can't eat either. There's something else about where she kind of has to go back to not being allowed to eat. Yeah, I mean, so she had gotten this taste of, you know, I live my own life. She, I think, had started playing again. And she was kind of living a healthier lifestyle in general. And like how she would get sucked in with James, she gets sucked into orbiting Toru's star, basically. Mm -hmm. And so she loses herself in the men of her life. And it started with Toru, it went to James, and then it comes back to Toru again. And she falls into these patterns of, it's not important if I get to eat what I want. What's important is that this person that I care about is being cared for. And so she again starts to sacrifice her own wants and needs, even unnecessarily, like wildly unnecessarily. Yeah. In order to benefit others. The kind of turning point in this section for her is when she finds a cassette tape. So to calm Toru down and to really make him feel better, he has tapes of himself playing music that they'll play for him and that makes him feel happy. And he'll talk about how wonderful he was and all of the reception he got in this performance. And so as she's going through his set of tapes, she finds one that's older. And when she plays it, she realizes it's a tape of the two of them playing together. As kids, they were going to do a recital together. And this is the point where he convinced her that she shouldn't be part of it, that he he just did it all by himself. Yeah, she was ruining it. Yeah. yeah. And so what she finds, though, with that is notes of his that indicate that he's trying to figure out how she was playing so well. And as she listens to it, she realizes that the part that she's hearing that is the beautiful part and the part that has the soul in it, that was her, not him. Right before she finds those tapes, she had confronted Toru's weird protege guy and was like listen i want to start playing again is there any way that you and i could switch rooms because your room is the farthest from toru's and i think if i close the door i can practice and play without disturbing toru and this guy always stands too close to her and he smells weird (laughs) and there's like this misunderstanding that happens all she wants is just to switch rooms with him because she wants to play This is, I think, the quote that I have. So what I wrote down is just, ew, that's my section of the quote. And then the real quote from the book is, I feel very comfortable with you, Setsu, as a brother with a sister. And as he's doing this, he's touching her. It's very strange. Not in a brotherly way. (laughs) No. And she is like, stop that. I have no interest in you. I really just want to change rooms with you. And... When she asserts herself like that, he turns around. He's like, why would anybody want you? But this confrontation that she has with him, he ends up leaving. And so now she really is all alone in taking care of Toru. And so she kind of spirals again. And that's when she finds the tapes. And then she realized, like, this has all been bullshit. This whole time, it's all been bullshit. And I'm mad. And I'm going to go try out for this orchestra thing in New York, even though Toru doesn't want me to. 
he can deal with it. I'm going to go. Yeah. I did like that. I did like that she finally had, you know, because again, she keeps getting sucked back in, sucked back in. And I think that while she might be the least realistic of the four, the bones of her story are, I mean, you hear about that all the time with women that get into these kind of victim complex or like Stockholm Mm -hmm. syndrome type relationships. So in some ways, I think she had a very real story. But yeah, for some reason, she just kept falling into these caricature portrayals of that stuff that I, yeah, I think you were right in that it was kind of, it was weird. So um, that's, that's the majority of it. We pop back to the baby shower. We find out Francesca's got kids and, you know. Like, like three kids. Yeah. yeah. Um, and everybody's happy and resolved their issues. Who knows if they talk to their moms anymore. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't really come up. <laughs> and and again, I think that that kind of falls into the interesting aspect of it. Of where like, there's a lot of resolution in the book. There's enough closure and happy endings that I think make all the shit that you have to slog through all the uncomfy stuff and everything makes it kind of worth it you get a bit of a payout of that and there's some release of pressure uh, i feel like at the end of the story but in other ways a lot is left kind of up in the air which i think can be good but can also be frustrating yeah well and i think that's what happens when again i keep coming back to i'm pretty sure that this is inspired by real people real roommates and you don't have a nice tidy bow on a real story you know. Yeah. So, after this long and arduous journey, uh, on a scale of one to four roommates, what do you give this book? <laughs> um, two and a half. What about you? I, I was gonna say three again because I don't. It was not an enjoyable book to read. It made me feel bad <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> but. That was the purpose of it, and I do think that I'll think about it for a long time, and I think... It's definitely a reflective book to read. I think it was a good book. It was just a really heavy, hard book. Like, I want to go watch some reality TV after this or something. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, and I think we've talked about it before, at least for me, a lot of my reading is escapism, and I Mm -hmm. want, like, I like hard things, in books, you know, but I want, I want it to be less real. Yeah. I think that's why I like sci-fi and fantasy so much because you can explore some heavy concepts without the weight of reality behind it. Cause that just changes the, the dynamic so much, you know? Yeah. But I mean, you and I have talked about this before about how I have really enjoyed some books that are like devastating. Mm-hmm. But there is that degree of separation where because even though this is a fiction story, it's set in such a real world. Well, and it's, you know, it's I think there are enough characters and enough things that they go through that any woman reading these books is going to identify with one of those relationships or one of those problematic relationships with food or whatever it's close to home i think for pretty much everybody in some way it hits on so many real things for women and i mean and you she ties it very much into you know the way 
women are portrayed versus the way women actually leave their, live their lives. And she does spread it out so much that I think there is something in each character that everyone can be like, ah, shit, I've been like that before, you yeah. know? All right. So uh, if you read along or if you read at your own pace or at a different time or whatever that might be, we would love to hear your opinions on this uncomfy book. Uh, you can email us at librarygamepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet at us or hit us up on Instagram. Uh, for both of those, we are at the library game. Uh, we'd love to hear your opinions on your experience with this book. And for next time, if you want to read along or find your own randomly chosen book, we went with the coordinates 11445. That's our RSSB coordinates, row, section, shelf, book. For us, that led us to The Housing Lark by Sam Selvin. Okay, so we will catch you all next time. Bye-bye. See you later.